Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. That was spectacular as always. And if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 37. Um, Betsy said something in the back there. It was, uh, it was concerning me for a moment. Am I supposed to be concerned? Okay. We'll figure it out. Um, so in the meantime, we'll talk about what happened last week. Last week we talked about Isaiah chapter 36 through Isaiah chapter 37. And if we remember, um, we discussed how there's a difference in, when it comes to the Bible with descriptive text and prescriptive text. And right now we're in a descriptive text. It's telling us what happened. Um, and that means that we can learn from it when we understand how God wants us to learn and what ways we want it to learn, or he wants us to learn. Um, and in it, though, we talked about how Hezekiah... Um, Basically, Hezekiah is being mocked. He's being jeered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are the great major threat. And so they're coming against Judah because they're hearing that Judah's going to rise up in rebellion. Um, and so basically, the Assyrians are saying, no, you're not. Um, and instead, no, we're going to stop you from doing that. And then they sent this delegation, basically this army, to conquer all of Judah except for Jerusalem. And the army is outside Jerusalem, and, and they're having this conversation. Um, so today we're going to actually see even more about how this all transpires um, and in the way that God saves basically Hezekiah and the Jewish people, the Judean people. So we're going to talk again about Assyria. Assyria is this major power which has conquered all this area that's kind of highlighted if you can see it. Um, go ahead to the next slide to see how they did it just all around conquering everyone uh, to the point where they even came through and uh, conquered Syria, they conquered Israel, and even met Egypt somewhere out here because Egypt had tried to fight, but let's be real, Egypt at that time was just not what they once were. Um, and so at this point, as of last week, what we saw was that Jerusalem was surrounded with an army by the king of Assyria, and that's where the whole delegation happens. But we're going to find, as we found last week, that God was going to keep the Assyrians from conquering Jerusalem, and we're going to see how this actually plays out today a little bit further. Um, so, let's get in some fun descriptive texts with fun names that everyone mocks me for not being able to say correctly. <laughs> All right, starting with verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Turkakah, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezif, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sevarim, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva? So the story continues as the Rabshakeh returns to, and okay, I've been saying it, Senna, what did I say last week? Sennacherib? Yeah, that's what you said last week. Yeah, Sennacherib. All right, it's actually, we're all wrong, because <laughs> I looked it up. Sennacherib. Sennacherib is his name. Uh, 
I'm just saying, we were all wrong. Anyway, uh, Senharib is the king. It is not stated why uh, Rabshakeh returned. It could range from not receiving an answer from Hezekiah directly or the people, or just likely that he did so because Senharib requested that his troops be uh, brought back to further quell the Egyptians. Regardless, it is at this point that Senharib hears that Turkica, the leader of the Egyptians, is going to attack. This causes Sanharib to send messengers back to Hezekiah once his army has been reformed. Just as the Rabshakeh had tried psychological political warfare against Hezekiah and the people by attacking Hezekiah, now Sanharib tries another tactic. Specifically, he attacks God. God, through Isaiah, has given Hezekiah hope. Now Sanharib attacks the very source of that hope. He does this by comparing the God of Israel and Judah against all the other national gods whom Assyria has overrun. The gods of those nations were unable to stop them. Why should Hezekiah or the people assume that their God is able to do what no other God had been able to do? In order to do this, he reminds Hezekiah of Gozan, of Haran, of Resef, and the people of Eden and Telassar, all the cities in Mesopotamia. What happened to them? They had all been crushed. He then makes it more personal. The kings themselves were taken away as prisoners. These cities in particular were in Syria, far closer to home than the Mesopotamian cities mentioned in the previous verse. Indeed, it is likely Hezekiah even knew some of these kings personally that the kings of Assyria had crushed. They trusted their gods, and yet they were beaten They were scorned, and they were broken by Assyria. And so again, Sanharib is asking, what chance do you have? So now starting with verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Senaharib, Senaharib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and all their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So Hezekiah, he reads the letter that was delivered by the messengers. Then two interesting things happen. The first is, Hezekiah does not respond to the messengers. He just takes it and then walks away. Um, But he does so deliberately. Instead of the messengers, he goes to the temple and spreads the letter before God and talks to him. He prays to God concerning the letter. He begins by appealing to God's majesty. God is the Lord of all, king of all, regardless of whatever other nations may believe. Not only this, but he is the creator. He is the one who is above all else in the known world and deserves respect. 
Hezekiah, knowing this, is the one true God of all, speaks to the only God who can actually listen and see. We notice Hezekiah does not plead for himself. He does not claim innocence. He does not claim righteousness before God. Instead, he appeals to the fact that God himself has been mocked. Hezekiah recognizes the truth of the claims of Sennacherib, Sennacherib. However, he also knows what Sennacherib does not. The gods of the other nations were mere idols who could, not, who could be destroyed because they were made by human hands. The true and the living God was the creator not created. The Assyrians conquered true, but they had never faced the true God. Thus Hezekiah makes the request in this way, that salvation would come not because the people are worthy to be saved, but that all the world will know that God is the true God of all. That all would come to know and honor the living and true God. Hezekiah shows us what a true servant of God desires. Not things for themselves, but the glory of God. Now we're going to come to the response by God. Verses 21 through 29. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord and have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the soul of my soul, soul with my foot, all the streams of Egypt." Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it has grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me. And your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So the response to Hezekiah's prayer is answered through Isaiah. God has indeed heard Hezekiah's prayer. This is an incredible contrast with Ahaz, who refused to take God into account with Assyria. Hezekiah was no such king, instead trusting in God to deliver them from Assyria. Thus God speaks. First, he describes Jerusalem. Despite seeming helpless before the mighty forces of Assyria, she is the one who is looking at Assyria triumphantly. They are not bound, they are not shackled, but instead free from the Assyrians' grasp. Then God speaks directly to Sanharib. Sanharib did not criticize some minor king or kingdom, nor did he seek to cause doubt in some political treaty. No, Sanharib dared to provoke the living God. Sanharib has mocked God himself. He has claimed that he has, through his own power, managed to conquer all that they have. 
They believe that they have, on their own right, managed to quell everything, even the mighty Nile River, the ancient Egyptian nations. Yet, has it been Sanhedib? The answer is no. Have you heard, tells us what it is possible to know that there is one far more powerful than Assyria. One who is actually in control of not just one small nation, but all nations. One who has set a plan in place for his own purposes. Sanharib has believed he is capable and powerful and he is the one. But the truth is God has ordained this Assyrian rise, their conquests against these nations. All the military victories, the crushing of these other nations underfoot, has been ordained by God to occur. God knows Sanharib in all of his doings. God is not surprised by the doings of the Assyrian king. Sanharib has dared mock God, and because he has mocked God, it will lead to his own judgment. Sanharib will be led away just as the Assyrians would lead away their own captives. He will be led away like cattle. Now verses 30 through 32. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And then the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the Lord gives a sign to Hezekiah over the course of three years. There's two interpretations when it comes to the years. The first is that it does not mean any particular year. The second is that particular years are designated, but it does not mean each year to be 12 months each. Instead, it is likely to have occurred around 15 or so months, with the sign being given toward the end of the first year, and then the second year being a full year, and then the third year being it fulfilled. Um, and if that doesn't make sense, it does in a way. Kind of. Um, ultimately, the point, though, is stated in 31-32. The people are sa- staying in safety of Jerusalem, unable to plant. This, however, will change. The people will again return to their homes eventually, um, within three years, and be able to harvest the land that God has given to them. And God is going to cause all of this stuff to happen. And actually, it does happen in that amount of time. Um, as we'll see, actually, as we see now, today. So, continuing forward. 33 through 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So the message uh, began with Jerusalem, and so it ends with Jerusalem. The king of Assyria will not overthrow Jerusalem. In fact, he will not even come against it. In the end, Sanharib will return to Assyria, bypassing Jerusalem completely. This will be done first because of God's own glory, and second because of the covenant made between God and David, of whom Hezekiah was a descendant. Now we're going to see what happens. Starting with verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sanharib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, 
Eshardon, his son, reigned in his place. So this is a bit of a postscript. Since Sanharib did not die until some 20 years after the coming against Judah, Ultimately, though, the campaign against Egypt was cut short because there was an illness which took over the Assyrians. Because of this, he returned to his own home. And this actually didn't, we have other sources that describe this event that happened. While no currently found text describes the assassination of Senahib by Ajamalek and his son Sherezer, um, it is recorded that Ershadon did reign in his place. This is interesting. Shanharib had been had made a, ba- a bold claim, right? That he, and by extension his gods, were stronger than the God of Judah. Yet in the midst of his worship, his own God was unable to protect him. Thus we find a dichotomy between the two in the end. Hezekiah knew that the gods of the pagan nations were nothing. But the Holy One of Israel was the true God, the King, and the Creator of all. Hezekiah prayed, and they were delivered. Sanachib worshipped, and he was destroyed. This also spells the end of the Assyrians' threat. Never after did the Assyrians mount an attack against Judah, and shortly after they began to decline as an empire, with Babylon coming in their wake, which we'll talk about later on in Isaiah. All right. So the main point of these verses are to show the threat against Judah. Ultimately, Sanachib, Sanachib, tried to show that the God of Hezekiah was unable to deliver him. Little did he know that the God of Hezekiah was the true God and is the true God. As such, God declared that he would not overthrow Jerusalem and in the end would be defeated himself. And in the end, this is exactly what happened. God protected his people and the king of Assyria was ended. All right. So in today's text, we learn of the response from Hezekiah regarding the knowledge that the enemy has him and his people in their sights. Hezekiah has seen what the enemy can do all of his life. He saw them conquering when his father reigned and saw them conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria and those all around the kingdom of Judah. As such, there is a reason to take the threats against himself seriously. He knows that personally against them he is powerless. That does not mean that he has no place to go. As it is, Hezekiah understands something many of us today do not, and that there is no power greater than the God of the universe. He believes and knows that the Holy One of Israel is the greatest of all, the King of all, and deserves allegiance above all. It is knowing this God which allows Hezekiah to see the great blasphemy against the God of Israel is not against the Hebrew national God alone, but against the very God who is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. As such, the haughtiness of the Assyrians to believe that they, or even their gods, are more powerful than the true and living God is worth bringing before God. It is not that Hezekiah has been blasphemed. It is not that Hezekiah has been mocked. It is that the Assyrians dare mock one greater than Hezekiah. Indeed, greater than they are. That is the problem for Hezekiah. When Hezekiah appeals to God, then it is because of his desire to honor God. This should cause each of us to question our own motivation when it comes to our prayer lives and when it comes to why we pray at all. Is the majority of our prayers based specifically on our own desires alone? Do we pray only in the hopes that God would be like the senile grandfather, willing to give us whatever we want, whenever we want? Or when we pray, 
do we do so with the understanding that the one who we pray to is so much greater than all others? And do we pray not first that our will be done, but that his will be done in our lives so that he can receive the greatest abundance of glory? Are we more concerned for ourselves than we are for the glory of God? Oftentimes, I suspect that we are. If we look around at our culture, whether Christian or secular, it is rife with the desire to be fulfilled primarily by what we believe is best for us. We are surrounded by people telling us to live our best life now, telling us to speak our own truth, telling us to believe whatever we want to believe, whether it fits with reality or not. We want answers, but we only accept the answers which fits our view of reality. We want to know truth, but we only want it if it fits our own narratives. We would critique the world outside for doing this, but the truth is we often do it ourselves with our beliefs about God within the Christian culture. It's been said that one of the most pagan days of the week is Sunday because far too many people we find who claim to believe in God actually are worshiping a God of their own imaginations. Not the Lord and the ruler of the universe, but the one who they have made up to fit in their box. I suspect that there is truth to this. Many people are more willing to redefine God to make him appear just like themselves than they are to embrace God for who he actually is. As it is, we are often in danger of these very things. We are in danger of believing things which we ought not to believe and doing things which we ought not to do. We are in danger of being incredibly self-focused so that nothing matters other than the great me, myself, and I. The world knows this. The world, the devil... And our sin natures all knows exactly what to do in order to get us to turn away from our God and seek to serve only ourselves. It knows exactly what to say, what arguments to make, in order for us to cease our obedience and turn to disobedience. In the end, it is no different than what Assyria is attempting to do when it comes to Hezekiah and the people of Judah. Assyria, in today's passage, is seeking to usurp God and claim the title of the greatest of all time. Yet the reality is Assyria is nothing when compared to God. Assyria is a minor thing when next to God. Despite the grandeur, despite the military prowess, despite the great strength it exhibits, in the end it is nothing more than dust in the wind. And the king of Assyria can easily be crushed by God. Again, the world is much the same way. The question we need to ask ourselves is, when we are in the face of the opposition, what will we do? Will we stand on our own strength? Will we build our fortresses and our walls? Will we seek to recreate God for our own purposes so that he is exactly like us? Or instead, will we seek obedience? Will we seek to honor God by walking humbly with him? Instead of seeking our own ways and our own paths, will we recognize that our God's ways are greater than ours? And his understanding is greater than ours. And his wisdom is greater than ours. And that the best we can do is remember that we are not the kings and queens of the world, but God is the king. This is the way we can be cured of our self-centeredness, by knowing God exactly as he is. Because once we know God as he is, the creator and the king of all, then we will recognize we have every reason to walk in humility before God. We have every reason to remember that we are finite in all of our potential. God, however, is infinite. Thus, we can trust in him when it comes to what we know and trust in his spirit and his truth 
And we have every reason to do so in light of who he is and who we are. In this way, we will walk humbly before our God. It is easy, however, incredibly hard to be humble before God because our sin nature wants us to be the kings and queens of Assyria, indeed kings and queens of the world. Yet if we are to only open our eyes, we would realize the only way to attain such glory is not through our own means, but through a humble heart before our great and mighty God. When we place our crowns at his feet, only then will we attain greatness, a greatness we can never attain on our own. As we consider this with one more step, let us also remember to pray for our leaders, both in and outside of the church. Um, I'm bringing this up because I think some of you have heard about things happening around town. Um, so this is going to be my response. Anyway, because the truth is leadership can itself be a temptation for many individuals. Leaders who would seek their own vain glory rather than obedience to God. It is dangerous to be in leadership positions because there is always the potential to become haughty with the potential power which can be easily corrupted and abused by anyone except for God. So keep leaders then in prayer that they would be humble before God. That our leaders would be more like Hezekiah and less like Senharib. That they would not seek to displace God, but that they would be uh, like Hezekiah, seeking to honor God. That God would raise up such leaders for us to follow as they walk in humility. And that we would walk with them as well. So as we seek God in humility, I suspect we will begin to see the things that Hezekiah and Isaiah saw. They saw a God who was active, who was moving, who was not surprised, who was all-powerful, who revealed himself to them, who fought for his glory and fulfilled his promises, and who gave purpose to the events which surrounded them. I suspect we will find much of the same. Yet it all starts with realizing who we are instead. My hope in all of this is that we would see that we can be A, easily misguided by Assyria in our pride, and B, we can be haughty and we can be egotistical. It is not shocking to see it within ourselves to be a people who can be swayed by what is not true. We must be on guard. We must be diligent in our understanding, but also humble, recognizing our own finiteness. If we don't, then we will be like Assyria, believing our God is a conqueror, only to realize that our God will be conquered by the living God in the end. And I think all this leads us to the gospel in significant ways. Um, because the gospel begins with our origins. It begins with the God, the creator, as Hezekiah described God in today's text. It was so wonderful in my view. Um, God, you are the creator of all. You are the king of all. It's not we the people. It's God who is the creator of all. And just like Hezekiah said, you know, all the nations of the world are under his control. He is bringing it about for a purpose. And we rejoice in this because that means that God truly is, as we talked with the kids, truly knows all. And he has planned wonderful plans for humanity if we should be humble. And so when we begin with this, it actually causes us to be humble, doesn't it? When we can really consider the fact that God created all of this, right? All of this reality that we experience, all the stars, all the grains of sand. When we consider the fact that he, with his wisdom, created things that none of us would have comprehended on our own. And he did it. I think that causes us to be humble. 
But it also causes us to remember that he also told us who we are. We're made in his image. That is a beautiful thing. That of all the created things that he created, humanity has the most dignity, sanctity, and worth to life out of everything else. Because we're made in his image, and it's wonderful. But we also have to deal with the problem. The problem is the king of Assyria. I'll stop saying his name for now. His haughtiness. His belief that he can conquer anything that he has. Not only he has, but all of his fathers before him. That the Assyrian nation is the greatest and always will be the greatest. That belief that they can even be better than God himself. That's sin right there. That's sin that would cause any human to take themselves and place themselves above God. When all of nature is obedient to God and humanity rebels. What does that say about humanity? When all of nature follows the laws that God placed in wisdom. And then humanity placing God's image, given this freedom of will, says no. And we see it in our world today. We see it with the arrogance and the haughtiness of people who would reject God and all of who he is and all the goodness that he brings for their own beliefs. Because they think that they can reinterpret the world in a better way. That their truths can be more true than the truth of God. It's darkness. But the problem is, is that we've all been there. We've all created our own untruths. We've all believed things that aren't true. And we've all sinned against God by not giving him the glory that he deserves. Even Hezekiah, we'll find next week, did this. So when even our best fails, how can we sustain? And by God's grace we can through the coming of his son Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in him. In his life, death, and resurrection, in time, space, history, and flesh, we find redemption from our sins, from all of our haughtiness and our pride, and it causes us even more <laughs> to be humble before our God because he's the one who does it, not you, not me. And that by grace, through faith, we are saved because of Jesus. And in the same way with Jerusalem, the same way with the people of Judah, it wasn't them who did it. It was God who did it. So he does with us. Our redemption is not our own. It is his. All it requires is faith. And where does it lead? Well, we know where it leads. It leads to where Christ returns. And we get to experience the kingdom of God fully. And we get to experience a world without sin finally. And we get to go on into eternity loving this God who has loved us so much as to cause all of those elements of darkness to be disbanded for our benefit and for his glory. I am looking forward to that. (laughs) Because our world is a dark world with sin. But I am looking forward to a world only of light. Let's keep on hoping for that world because we know it's going to happen. And let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this description of what happened in the past. That we were able to see the response from Hezekiah. And we were able to see your response through Isaiah, your prophet, 
over what you would accomplish for your own glory and ultimately for your people's blessing. We ask, Lord, as we face our own Assyrian armies today, that when we face the world today, that we would be like Hezekiah. That we would be bold to pray to you and to trust in your name. And that we would also be like Isaiah to proclaim the truth. And that we would not be scared of the truth. Lord, you are a wonderful God. You are worthy to be followed. You have shown us repeatedly over and over again throughout the course of history that you are truly in control. Let us put our faith in you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.